turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, and while you are turning there, uh, I mentioned last week that uh, Ligonier Ministries was having their national conference, and I think it just wrapped up yesterday or this morning, but they released their official statement, their Christology statement, um, and it's kind of a nice uh, collection of, of the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed put together, and the language isn't as... Uh, dense and rich. It's a little more plain language. So uh, if, if you have not signed up for our daily email devotional that goes out called The Vine, do that. Uh, you can get on the church app and sign up or fill out one of the communication cards. Tomorrow I'm going to put their Christology statement in the devotional for you to read through, and it's a nice summary of Christology, what we believe, what Christians believe or should believe about the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. So we'll be keeping with that same theme like last week. Today we're going to be looking at two more Christological heresies that popped up in the early church. And these two heresies became popular in the fifth century. And people were talking about them everywhere they went on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. It was all over social media and the news. The hashtag God incarnate was all over social media as people were talking about Jesus and these heresies began to spread throughout the church. Even Christian bookstores were stocking their bookshelves with authors who embraced these heresies. Some Christians were even putting quotes by these individuals, these heretics, on their coffee mugs. They were putting quotes by these heretics up on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And that's because Christians sometimes don't think rightly about Jesus Christ. Sometimes Christians have a wrong idea about the incarnation of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Sometimes, believe it or not, Christians don't think rightly about Jesus Christ. And it ends up on our coffee mugs and in our tea, on our t-shirts and in Christian bookstores and on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram And that's why I have labored over the years since I've been here at Grace to remind you that Jesus was a human being and that Jesus is a human being. You have heard me repeatedly tell you over the years that Jesus was made up of flesh and blood and bone and that he had armpits that would stink and kneecaps and shins and big toes and earlobes and teeth and he had a tongue and his breath would smell when he woke up in the morning and he had to use the restroom and he got hungry and he cried and he wasn't exempt from stubbing his toe or stepping on uh, maybe a cousin or nephew's Lego in the middle of the night if he spent the night there. Or sleeping crooked and waking up with a crick in his neck. He wasn't exempt from any of these things because he was a human being and he is a human being just like you and me. The difference is he is without sin. Now, some of you may be sick of me hearing me beat this drum about the humanity of Jesus. But if you lived in the 5th century, then you would have loved it and you would have wanted your pastor to preach sermons about the humanity of Jesus. In fact, if you know their church history, one Christian, one pastor was actually beaten to death because he believed the things that I'm telling you. Talk about that in a moment. And they were 
interested in this topic because heresies were popping up all over the churches and it was causing division in the body of Christ. And the one key passage, I think, that the early church fathers went to in order to counteract these false ideas about Jesus is the passage that we looked at last week and that we'll look at again today, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. So look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 again and hear the word of the Lord. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. The verse that the early post-apostolic church probably turned to most to guide their understanding of the incarnation was Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. They went to this verse because it tells them about the incarnation of Jesus. His taking to himself the human flesh that he had created for Adam so that he could heal it of all that had been inflicted upon it in the fall when Adam sinned in Genesis 3. And it would be in and with real human flesh and blood that Jesus would be plunged into death and he would come out on the other side in glorious bodily resurrection. So the incarnation of Jesus also shows us how important human bodies are to God. Since we share in flesh and blood, because we're made up of flesh and blood, Jesus had to share in flesh and blood in order to redeem us. And after his death, Jesus didn't discard the flesh and blood that he took on. He came to redeem it, to fix it, to heal it, to restore it, to resurrect it. He came to redeem what Adam messed up. And that's what our big idea is all about today. God comes to us and becomes like one of us so that people like us can come to him and become like him. And that should give you goosebumps. God comes to us and he becomes like one of us without sin so that people like us, sinners and rebels, can actually come to him, a holy God, and then become like him in resurrection. And grace, that should give us goosebumps. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the radiance of the glory of God, came from the glories of heaven to sinners and rebels like us, and he became just like us, a human being without sin, so that we would come to him and be with him forever, so that we would experience resurrection like him, so that we would be like him in resurrection. Jesus came to be with us so that he could be for us as our faithful and merciful high priest. That should give you goosebumps. Don't ever let that wear off. Don't ever become bored with that truth. And it's the who of the incarnation That is the most extraordinary thing of all. Jesus is God with us. He is not an angel. He is not some messenger. He is not some ambassador. He is God in the flesh. He is the God that we would expect to stay seated on his throne in heaven. But he condescends and he comes down to us. He leaves heaven and he begins his life as a human being by being born in a feeding trough that was used by animals. 
And he ends his life on a shame-filled Roman cross. It's like somebody forgot to tell Jesus about the trough and the cross. Did he not get the memo about how lowly and despised those things are? No, he got the memo. He's just a God that likes to break protocol. He came down in order to save us. He is God And he shared in our flesh and blood in order to save us. And that means if you make Jesus less than God, then you make the gospel less than good. And that means if Jesus is not the same as you, then Jesus cannot save you. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 again. Since therefore the children... The the, the preacher of Hebrews has been talking about us, adopted children of God. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, think about what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here when he says, since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He's telling us that because we are human beings, Jesus had to become a human being like us in order to save us, to redeem, fix, and heal, restore, and resurrect what Adam messed up in the garden. He's telling us that Jesus took on human flesh and became a human being. Okay, so Jesus became a human being. But let's think back to Hebrews chapter 1. How does the preacher of Hebrews describe Jesus? Look back at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus, the heir of all things, the one through whom God created the world, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the one who has the exact imprint of God's nature, he shares in flesh and blood like us. Think about that. The radiance of the glory of God shared in human flesh and blood and bone and tissue like you and me. The radiance of the glory of God became a human being. That truth should cause you to scratch your head. How is this possible? They seem like they would not be compatible. Well, that's exactly what the church in the 5th century was wondering. And this is exactly where some people went wrong in the 5th century. Instead of being flabbergasted at the incarnation of Jesus, instead of getting goosebumps, they tried to figure Jesus out. They tried to figure out the incarnation as if Jesus was a riddle or a mystery to be solved. And two of the answers to that question, how can the radiance of the glory of God become a human being, two of the answers to that question were way off base. Two answers to that question did not jive with the Bible. And that's what we'll look at briefly today, and then we'll see how it applies to us and just how important the doctrine of the incarnation really is. The early church struggled with this in the 5th century. Two heresies popped up that stood in stark contrast to the book of Hebrews. The first one is called Nestorianism. This model of Christology takes its name from a man named Nestorius. However, the man Nestorius may or may not have held this particular view. He was a a very sloppy writer. He was very quick to post things on social media without thinking them through. And he was condemned as a heretic because of some things that he said. 
But after he was condemned as a heretic, he said, oh, I didn't believe those things. So we don't know if he believed them or not. But uh, either way, his name got tagged with this heresy. And because he was a sloppy writer and poorly interpreted by his followers, church history has cemented this Christological model with Nestorius. And that's just how history works. You can't uh, defend yourself once you die. So Nestorianism concerns itself with what is called the logos anthropos. Those are the Greek words for word or human. It's the word human Christology. And with Nestorianism, Jesus is viewed as being fully God and fully man. Jesus is viewed as being 100% God, 100% man. And that sounds good so far, right? Isn't that what we believe here at Grace? That doesn't sound heretical. You may be thinking, Pastor, what's wrong with saying that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man? What's wrong with saying that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Here's where it's wrong, and here's where Nestorius got it wrong. Nestorius had such a strong, robust view of Jesus being fully God, and he had such a strong, robust view of Jesus being fully man that in Nestorius' mind, Jesus is almost two different persons. Yes, Jesus is of the same essence and nature as God the Father, Nestorius would say. Jesus is God. He would say that. And Nestorius would affirm, Hebrews 1.3, that we just read, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And yes, Nestorius would affirm, Hebrews 2.14, that Jesus partook of the same flesh and blood as us. He would say Jesus is fully human. He would say that he's fully God, fully man. 100% God, 100% man. And that sounds right, right? It does sound right, but there's a subtle difference between Nestorius' view of Jesus and what the Bible affirms. Nestorius was all about the God-man Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. But by emphasizing these two natures so much, Nestorius actually sacrifices the unity of these two natures, God and man. In other words, He's gung-ho about the deity of Jesus, and he is gung-ho about the full humanity of Jesus. But he's gung-ho about these two natures so much that he actually downplays the unity of these two natures in the person of Jesus. So where Nestorius goes wrong is his neglect of the unity of these two natures, God and man, in the one person, Jesus. So we would give Nestorius an A+. On his understanding of the deity of Jesus, and we would give him an A plus on his understanding of the humanity of Jesus. Nestorius believed that Jesus is a human being, he is God, but he flunks out on the unity of these two natures. So, in the process, Nestorius ends up with not one, but with two Jesuses one human Jesus and one divine Jesus. Nestorius would say, sometimes Jesus acts as God when he does things. And sometimes Jesus acts as a man when he does things. Nestorius would say that there were two Jesuses. So when Nestorius reads the Gospels, he sees Jesus the human, Jesus as a man sleeping in a boat. And then he saw Jesus the divine, Jesus as God healing a blind man. Nestorius would say, look, it's Jesus the human. That's the one who's eating the fish. Jesus, the human, who's playing Frisbee with the disciples. It's Jesus, the human, who is posting a picture on Instagram and using 50 hashtags. 
And look, it's Jesus the human drinking water. It's Jesus the human craving Chick-fil-A. But then the stories would say, look, it's Jesus as God walking on water. Jesus as God turning water into wine. Jesus the divine who is raising Lazarus from the dead. What Nestorius did was he divided Jesus into two parts. Sometimes Jesus did things as a human being, and sometimes he did things as God. He stressed the two natures, but not the unity of these two natures. So understand this, Grace. It is not enough to say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. It is not enough to say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We must in the same breath and in the same sentence say that these two natures, God and man, are united in the one person, Jesus. You have to have these two natures united, not divided, united in the one person, Jesus, or the Jesus that you speak of is not the Jesus of the Bible. Now, Nestorius had what is called the Jeopardy Daily Double Christology, and it goes like this. Look, there's Jesus the divine, Jesus as God, healing the blind man. There's Jesus as God walking on water. Look, that's Jesus as God who's being transfigured on the mountain. And then Nestorius would say, but let's just wait just a minute. He was a very patient heretic. (laughs) And then he would say, look, there's Jesus, the human, sleeping in the boat. There's Jesus as a man getting hungry. Jesus as a man crying. Nestorius never saw the unity of these two natures. He never said, look, it's the God-man sleeping in the boat. Look, it's the God-man eating bread. Look, it's the God-man walking on water. Look, it's the God-man turning water into wine. And so now we have a picture of Nestorius in his lab. And he says, I get it now. It's like the double mint gum commercials. There's two Jesuses. And he would actually say that, refer to Jesus as not him, but as two hymns is how he would say it. Nestorius read Hebrews 2.14 that way. When Nestorius read Hebrews 2.14, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, he believed that sometimes Jesus showed up in the flesh as God, and sometimes he showed up in the flesh as a man, as a human being. He was wrong because he did not stress the unity of the two natures in one person. Jesus is fully God and fully man, 100% God, 100% man, united in one person. We can't leave out the phrase united in one person. We must always say united in one person, Jesus, when we say that Jesus is fully God or fully man or we will be in danger of becoming Nestorian in our Christology. Someone needed to tell Nestorius that God comes to us and he becomes like one of us so that people like us can come to him and become like him. 
And that should give you goosebumps in the stories. Someone needed to tell in the stories that Jesus wasn't a puzzle to be solved. He's a savior to be worshipped. Someone needed to tell in the stories and his followers that Jesus had two distinct natures, God and man, but that these two natures were not divided or separate. Someone needed to tell in the stories that the full humanity of Jesus had to be united with all that God is in one person. And that someone who told in the stories these things was Cyril, a bishop, a pastor in Alexandria, who called the Third Ecumenical Council together at Ephesus in 431 AD. And it was there that the teachings of Nestorius were declared heresy because they were incompatible with the testimony of the apostles and prophets as recorded in God's word. And then Nestorianism was further cemented as heresy when 20 years later, the Council of Chalcedon, the Fourth Ecumenical Council in 451, rejected his interpretation of Hebrews 2.14. And then, guess what happened? After these two councils, after they declared him, a heretic in the story said, I didn't believe those things about Jesus. But his writings and his tweets and his Facebook posts proved otherwise. Nestorius wasn't the only guy with a weird name in the 5th century to come up with a weird idea about Jesus. There's another gentleman with a wacky name who came along with another wacky view of Jesus. The second heresy to pop up in the 5th century is called Eutychianism. And yes, you guessed it, Eutychianism gets its name from a man by the name of Eutyches. Eutyches was the head of a monastery in Constantinople, and he and his followers believed this about Jesus. Eutyches said that Jesus was human and divine. Eutyches said that Jesus was a human being and he was God for a while. For Eutyches, the humanity of Jesus got blended with the deity of Jesus, and you got some form of a third thing at the incarnation. So you have something that's not human and something that's not God. It would be like mixing yellow Gatorade with blue Gatorade and getting what? Green Gatorade. Remember, yellow and blue makes green. That's Eutyches' Christology, his view of Christ. The two natures, God and man, got blended together and Jesus became some new thing. Church historian Stephen Nichols says this, To him, Eutyches, Christ was a third thing. The human and the divine natures conjoined in such a way to create a new being. One new and different person fashioned out of two natures is how he liked to put it. That is a theological way of saying yellow and blue makes green. So according to Eutyches, Jesus' human nature got mixed together with his divine nature. And all of a sudden, you don't have two natures united in one person. You have one blended nature in one new thing. So here's Dr. Eutyches in his lab. And he says, I get it now. He's just like a Ziploc bag. Yellow plus blue equals green. And here's Jesus saying, um, excuse the new me, dude. Eutyches creates this other blended Jesus in his writings and theology. He has one blended nature in one person. Again, Stephen Nichols describes the problem with Eutyches' teachings. The problem with stressing the unity without the counterbalance of the two intact natures, as Eutyches does, is that Christ loses his human and divine identity. As such, he is not truly our representative. The Christ of Eutyches falls short of Paul's teaching of Christ as the last Adam. Biblical Christology 
is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, 100% God, 100% man, united in one person. We can't leave out the phrase united in one person. We must always say united in one person when we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man or we will be in danger of becoming Eutychian in our Christology. And so someone needed to tell Eutyches and his followers that Jesus had two distinct natures, God and man, and that these two natures were united in one person, in Jesus, not blended together like a smoothie and making a new thing. Someone needed to tell Eutyches that the full humanity of Jesus had to be united with all that God is in one person and not blended together. And that someone was Flavian who was the bishop of Constantinople, and he called a synod, he called a council that met at Constantinople in 448 AD where the teachings of Eutyches were deemed heretical and incompatible with the testimony of the apostles and prophets in God's word. And there was a lot of drama involved in this whole situation. A lot of politics got involved after Eutyches was declared a heretic. Flavian led the charge at that council in 448 that declared Eutyches a heretic, and Eutyches had friends in high places, though. He had government officials, leaders, and he went to them and said, they've called me a heretic. So the government reversed the decision of the church and said, Eutyches is not a heretic. And they grabbed Flavian and drug him in and said, sign the paper saying that Eutyches is not a heretic. And Flavian said, I will not do it because it contradicts God's word. And they beat Flavian to death. It was called a robber's council because the government got involved and changed what the church believed. Well, the church had, was still meeting and they met for another five years or a few years and then actually came out with the creed of Chalcedon. In 451 AD, 520 pastors had been speaking getting together regularly, and they said, yes, Eutyches is a heretic. And they got together and they said, this is what we believe about the incarnation. Let me read briefly what they said. This is amazing. 520 pastors got together from all over, and they agreed on something. Listen, all the pastors in Santa Maria, if we got together, we might agree on the gospel. And I think there are some that I wouldn't agree with what they think is the gospel. There are people in town who think that we're supposed to be rich and not ever get sick. Health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, I don't buy that, so I wouldn't even believe with all the pastors here in town. So imagine all the pastors in Santa Maria getting together and we say, this is what we agree about Jesus. 520 pastors did that at Chalcedon in 451 AD. Here's a snapshot of what they said about Jesus. We believe one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son." Now, if that's a little wordy for you, you can read, I encourage you to read that. But you could also check out the Ligonier statement on Christology, and it kind of breaks some of that down in, in language because we don't use words like inconfusedly anymore and things like that. So, Eutyches was eventually declared a heretic, and it stuck. Both Nestorius and Eutyches 
weren't floored by the incarnation. That's their problem. They studied the incarnation and they didn't get goosebumps. They forgot, as Michael Reeves says, that first and foremost, Jesus is a savior of the helpless and his salvation is not about God from a distance lobbing down some sort of help, some grace here. God graciously gives us himself in his own life. God is the blessing of the gospel. God with us. Nestorius and Eutyches missed that Jesus is the blessing of the gospel. They weren't flabbergasted that God, the triune God, the eternal God, the immortal God, the infinitely glorious God would come down to people like us. Instead of getting goosebumps that God came down, they tried to figure out the incarnation. They thought the incarnation was a riddle to be solved, a mystery to be solved. And even though they were talking about Jesus, they actually got their eyes off of Jesus. And that seems to be the perennial danger for the church in any age. So we're always living a few steps away from dethroning Christ and replacing him with, well, anything. Replacing him with a Jesus of our own choosing. We fall out of love with Jesus. That's what happened to the church in Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus. They were working, toiling, enduring, doing all the stuff that Christians are supposed to do, and they forgot their first love, Jesus. They were doing all these things for Jesus, and they forgot to stay in love with Jesus. See, sometimes Jesus slips between the cracks of all of our doctrines, all of our Bible studies, all of our small groups, and it happens ever so subtly when Jesus is no longer proclaimed, when the gospel is no longer proclaimed. Instead, the church can begin to preach even a Christian worldview or a bunch of how-to lists. And in the process, Jesus gets drowned out in a flood of moral exhortation and church activism. We start preaching, you got to do this, you got to be this, you got to do that. You got to do all these activities. And in the process of all of these things, Jesus gets lost. The church's greatest challenge is nothing other than distraction from Jesus, even as we talk about Jesus. Even as we talk about his incarnation, we can lose sight of him. We can lose sight of the wonder of who Jesus is. The bottom line is this. To be Christian is to affirm this about Jesus, that he is 100% God and 100% man with those two natures united together in one person. Jesus is fully God, fully man with those two natures distinct, not blended together, but united in one person. Jesus has two distinct natures united in one person. Is there anything in creation that I can point you to and say Jesus is like that, that God-man is like that? No, there's not. There's nothing in creation that I can point to and say that thing is made up of two natures, not separate, not divided, but unified in one person. There's nothing. And just like the Trinity, there is nothing in creation that we can look at and say that's exactly what the triune God is like. He's not an apple. He's not steam, water, ice. There's nothing in creation that I can point you to and say, that's what God's like. 
Because God is God. Those are the key points of Christology. Jesus is God. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus is human, just like you and me. And these are the key points of Christology, and they all point to a person. They all point to Jesus. Donald Fairbairn, theology professor, says this. Therefore, I often assert that the main point of biblical and patristic Christology is not whether Christ is one person with two natures, but who that one person is. It is not enough simply to assert that Christ is one person and that he has two natures. Nestorius affirmed that, yet his Christ was a different one from the real Christ who alone can save us. Many people in the last 200 years have affirmed that Christ is one person in two natures, but they have not meant by this that he is the eternal son of God who has become human. The crucial truth, the saving truth, is that for us to be saved, God had to come down to save us. So the one who came down had to be truly God, just as fully God as the Father. Furthermore, the equally crucial truth is that the Son had to come all the way down to us by becoming human so as to live, die, and be raised as a man. In order for us to be saved, God himself had to come down to save us. Therefore, not only does the word have to be God, but Jesus and the word have to be the same person. If Jesus is not the word, if he is not the radiance of the glory of God, but is instead just a man in whom the word dwells, then God has not come down to save us and therefore we are not saved. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is God the word who has become human for us and for our salvation. This is the central truth that the early church sought to proclaim and we would do well to recapture it in our day. And Jesus' union with us in the incarnation is the foundation of our union with him. Because God the Father shares, because he is a sharing God who loves to give, he shares his son Jesus with us and then Jesus shares in our flesh and blood and then Jesus invites us to share in his relationship with his father. The father shared the son, the son shared in our humanity and then he shares his relationship with his father. What more could we ask? His union with us in the incarnation is the foundation of our being in union with him. He had to become what we are in order to fix what we are, to redeem what we are, to heal what we are, to resurrect what we are. And what are we? We're sinners, broken sinners who had no chance of salvation if Jesus did not become just like us. And so in Jesus... For the first time since the fall of Adam, we have a human being living in perfect fellowship with God. And this he shares with us. Jesus shares his own sonship with us. He shares his own relationship with his father with us. That should give you goosebumps. Jesus came down to us and partook of flesh and blood in order to bring us to God. He shared in our humanity. Jesus was a teenager with pimples. That should give you goose pimples. He's the word made flesh. That should give you goose flesh. And Jesus had real human hair, and that should make your hair stand on end. You should get 
horripilation when you think about the humanity of Jesus. You should get horripilation, the medical term for goosebumps. You should get horripilation when you think about the humanity of Jesus. Why? Because what kind of God does Jesus reveal to us in the incarnation? Jesus shows us that God the Father is love, that he is outgoing, and that he loves to share, and he loves to give. He loves to share the love that he has with his own son with others, and Jesus is proof of that. Jesus is proof that God is love. And as John Owen said, we are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. You will never be nearer to Jesus, the God-man, than when you find yourself totally flabbergasted that he loves and puts up with a rebellious sinner like you. You will never be nearer to Jesus than when you find yourself totally awestruck that he loves you. And so in Jesus, we have seen the glory of the God of love, the radiance of the glory of God. In Jesus, we see the union of the divine and the human, the union of what we might suspect to be two diametrically opposed natures, but apparently not so incompatible after all. God and man seem like they would be incompatible. But thank God that those two natures were not incompatible. Thank God that God comes to us and he becomes like one of us so that people like us can come to him and become like him. That should give you goosebumps. Like Michael Reeves said, my mind goes quite giddy and I get goosebumps as I write this. God has come to be with us. The Lord of glory has made himself a closer friend than any other. No, not just close. The bridegroom has made himself one with his dear bride. Because of what the Son of God has done, I can now say that I am flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. All he is, he has given to us so that all he has, he can share with us. The staggering thing about the incarnation is that Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of the triune God, who is the eternal son of the father, that he lived as a man from embryo to adulthood, from umbilical cord to an ugly cross. And then God raised him from the dead. Who is Jesus? He is God's eternal beloved son who has become human while remaining who he already was in order to accomplish our salvation. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the radiance of the glory of God, came from the glories of heaven to save sinners and rebels like us, and he became just like us, a human being, so that we could come to him and be like him and be with him forever. Jesus came to be with us so that he could be for us forever. That should give you goosebumps. Don't ever let that wear off. Don't ever become bored with that truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're such a giving, sharing, loving God. And your love for your son, you couldn't keep to yourself. So you made a people who you knew would fall in sin. You knew you would send your son to redeem them, to fix what Adam broke so that we could share in that love. What an amazing God you are. So giving, so so sharing with people who don't deserve it. What wonderful, wonderful good news it is, Father.
that you made him who knew no sin to become like us, Father, our sins, that we would become like him, that we would have his righteousness. You made him to be sin, our sin on the cross, so that your wrath would fall on him and we would dodge it. We'd be protected, removed from it forever, and we'd be covered with his righteousness. Oh God, may it give us goosebumps today for your glory and for our joy. Amen.